the telescope now is what, um, 50, um, 58 years old, you know, it was commissioned back in 1961. When it was built, it was the largest science project in Australia, you know, the first big science project. It's only meant to have a lifetime of 20 years, but it's been upgraded so often in the time that it's, we've, it's, it's maintained its position at the very forefront of world radio astronomy. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is about religion and science, or rather science and religion, because that's the, probably the way we're going to be discussing them today. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by our special guest, John Sarkissian, operations scientist at the CSIRO Parks Observatory, who's visiting Sydney and was kind enough to spare a moment to talk with us today. Welcome, John. Hello, Peter. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Well, I came across John because um, one of my uh, good friends, Bishop Umbers, was visiting your observatory and he sent me a message almost immediately afterwards <laughs> to say, here's a copy of this man's card, call him and get him on the podcast. So he was very impressed, obviously. What did you do with him out there that made him so well, impressed? we just had a cup of coffee in the, the dish cafe there. He was <laughs> visiting with um, Bishop Columba. Oh, yes. And um, I, I saw them in the cafe. I know Bishop Columba pretty well. And mm. so we just had a coffee together and had a very long conversation and so on. And um, I was asked if I'd mind doing the podcast. Really? I said, I'd be delighted to do it. So here well, I am. I'm glad he asked you because a couple of times he's recommended people and hasn't asked them. <laughs> and I've contacted them out of the blue and they've gone, what? Who are you? Who are this widow stalker? Um, before we get started, we should remind our listeners, if you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Okay, let's get into today's topic. Firstly, you're here as a scientist, so you're, you're, we should say quite clearly, you're not here on behalf of the CSIRO, so can you explain the... That's right, you know, um, I work at the CSIRO and at the Parks Observatory there, but, you know, what I'll be talking about is my own personal experiences and um, my own beliefs in the... Uh, so it's in no way, you know, an official CSIRO policy or anything that I'll Excellent. be discussing, but just faith in general, so my, my faith in general. Well, to be honest, when I was looking uh, looking up uh, information on you, John, yes, I do. I'm a little bit of a stalker in some respects. <laughs> but when I was looking up information, the, the Parks Observatory was a very interesting website, but I had much more fun on your personal website looking at your research. So hopefully we get to talk about that a bit. And with your permission, we'll throw that website link in our podcast yeah, notes. That's fine. Yeah. Excellent. I'll update it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll give you motivation to update it. Excellent. Um, you're observing in lots of different areas. And before we get into the actual science, what got you into this kind of science? Well, I've always wanted to do um, astronomy, you know. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the era of the Apollo astronauts traveling wow. to the moon. So it's kind of inspiring. It was, you know. And um, I think most people of my vintage, you know, um, were inspired by 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 those events, you know, I was six years old when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon wow. and I remember sitting cross-legged on the cold wooden floor of the school assembly room in Sydney, watching the, the live pictures coming in from the moon of the astronauts cavorting around on right. the moon and, and it's burnt into my memory. And sure. then a few months later, they actually drove past my house on their, on their trip around the world, their, their, right. their victory tour, if you like there. And, um, and again, that, that printed itself on my memory and, I grew up in school, you know, where we were doing school projects about space, travel to the moon and so on. I think it just became inevitable that I'd be fascinated by it and I ended up doing a, a school project in year five and that really got me going. So since the age of 10, that's all I've ever wanted to do, to, to, do, right, to do astronomy in general. And it looks like, I mean, you're in the perfect job for it in the perfect place. Well, it is. You know, I mean, um, in year nine, again, just to go back to the school, um, on the cover of my mathematics textbook was a painting of the Parkes Radio Telescope. <laughs> and I remember sitting there in class uh, while the teachers try on the blackboard trying to teach us how to solve quadratic equations and so on, just <laughs> staring at the painting and dreaming of working there one day. Right. And here I am now, you know, almost Trying to do quadratic equations. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it's just, I, I often, you know, I look out my window from my office and I see the dish right in, yeah. know, looming outside and, and I often to pinch think yourself, back really? to that time and think, you know, here I am, you know, the daydreams do come true. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, well, the question I have to ask now, this is getting a bit controversial, but mm. all this stuff they told us was essential to learn in school. Now, I did 
year 12 all the way through to math and I did engineering first year. So I used a lot of math. But I can't say I've used quadratic occasions and other things <laughs> very much since I moved over to theology. So uh, are you using all this amazing yeah, math? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's very seldom that you actually have to solve complicated equations. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, the, the equations have been solved and we just use the, the results. But That's right. every so often, you know, when a new problem arises, we then have to apply our knowledge and experience to solve that particular sure. problem. and you need to understand how the working out works in order That's to solve right. it. That's right. So you have to understand where those equations come, what they actually mean, and why you're using it, and so on. And so the fundamentals that, that led to those are essential to know. Sure. But um, it... I mean, but we don't sit there solving complicated equations all day, no, thank no. goodness. <laughs> well, I mean, I used to joke about the fact that nobody uses this stuff, but uh, when I was looking at equations on stress tests on bridges yes. and, and how a bridge was held up by the different steel things, you think mm. people might not need the math every day, but mm. they rely on it every day exactly. because they cross a bridge or, the, or right. they drive on a road or anything like that. And clearly we're looking at things that are quite a lot further away than roads and bridges when we're, when we're doing this kind of tracking. So your, your main work seems to be observed and tracking things and working out clever ways to observe and track things. Is that a fair? That's right. You know, as an operations scientist, uh, my main role is to, to look after the science operations of the telescope, make sure that the telescope's working, that the astronomers know how, that are, that are observing, know how to use it, that the software works, that everything's functioning correctly. So w when the astronomers use it, they get the best possible data. Right. So but other people show up looking for the data and you're, you're the person in charge of making sure they get it. Essentially, yes. You know, we, we, we train um, – nowadays, astronomers log in over the internet. In the past, they actually had to come to the telescope. <laughs> so um, there's not as many visitors these days. No, it's not as much fun as it used to be. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, someone could be um, – we have to train them so they know how to use it. And then we keep an eye on them to make sure that everything is working. And, um, and yeah, you know, the, the, because it's, it's an iconic facility, it's a world-class facility, one of the leading instruments of its kind in the world, mm. um, we, we do our utmost to make sure that the people that use it get the best possible data from the time that they've been allocated. So let, let's step back a bit. We're kind of assuming people know what we're talking about here. Yeah. The Parks Observatory is uh, literally well, the biggest thing that we're most – uh, aware of is the dish itself, the, the huge observatory dish which picks up waves coming from all over the, right, yeah. the place and you, we're going to talk about that more in a second. Mm. Uh, probably most famous for the layman at least mm. for the movie The Dish and, and the, you know, I hear that you were a consultant for that movie. Yeah, you know, the, the Parkes Telescope is uh, a, what we refer to as a radio telescope. It's essentially just a glorified radio antenna. <laughs> and the reason it's shaped as a dish and is as large as it is is because it, it produces a very a very narrow beam, radio beam on the sky, so we can detect the energy coming from the radio emissions from the stars right. from those very precise positions on the sky. So you really have to be pointing directly at what you're looking at. That's right, yeah. And, it's, and because of its size, it's very sensitive. Right. And... Um, and so as a result, um, because we use it to study the radio emissions of the stars, we refer to it as a radio telescope. Right. But whenever you say telescope, the first thing everybody imagines is <laughs> something you look through. Yes, That's where's right. the eye hole? <laughs> and often um, we have to, when we get there, it's the second most common question we get asked, you know, is what do you see with it? The answer is nothing. We just detect the, the, en the radio energy coming from very specific points. And so a huge part of that is then learning how to interpret those waves. Exactly, it? yes. So we have to collect those radio waves, amplify them, put it into a form that can be studied by right. the astronomers and analysed and, and they, they get the information that they're after. Now, clearly someone thinks that's useful, uh, both in a, from a government yes. perspective and a, and a commercial perspective, because mm. you're given some money to do this. The, the telescope now is, what, um, 50, um, 58 years old, you know. It right. was commissioned back in 1961. When it was built, it was the largest science project in Australia. Wow. The first big science project. <laughs> it's only meant to have a lifetime of 20 years. But it's been upgraded so often in the time that it, we've, it's, it's maintained its position at the very forefront of world radio astronomy. Can you tell me something that uh, Parks has added, if you like, to science? Well, there are, there are many things that Parks has, has contributed to, and the astronomers that use the telescope have contributed, but one of those is the um, development of Wi-Fi. Um, so hang on, you're telling me Aussies, or at least scientists in Australia, invented Wi-Fi? Exactly. Well, they didn't invent. They they made the Wi-Fi work. You know, right. because other engineers around there were spending billions of dollars trying to get Wi-Fi to work, and they weren't succeeding. But astronomers in Australia, what they wanted to do was look for the the radio signals bouncing off. Um, black holes, right. you know, the Hawking radiation, where the signals are all 
confused and entangled. Sure. So they developed an algorithm with a chip that would allow them, when they were doing their observation, disentangle all that right. and try and detect it. To try and it. make some sense That's of it. That's right. So they were using the Parkes telescope and other, other telescopes within Australia and elsewhere. And in the end, they, they, they didn't succeed in finding that Hawking radiation, that right. we call it, that, that Stephen Hawking said should be there. Um, but then they realised, hang on, this, this algorithm and this chip can be used to solve the Wi-Fi problem that all these <laughs> other people have been struggling to make work, but we can make it work using right. this, this technique. And so they set about to do it and they perfected it, patented the idea and the, the, the algorithm and so on, and now it's everywhere. Right. <laughs> and one of the great ironies is that one of the places you can't use Wi-Fi is at parks. <laughs> <It's at> parks. <laughs> because, because, you know, it interferes with the signals we're trying to detect from the stars you know, right. and overwhelms the really feeble, weak signals that we're trying to get. But it's a great example of how people, when they go out to try and understand the universe mm. you know um they come up with techniques and theories and and technologies to do that which then have applications elsewhere right. that's fantastic as I, yeah so as I'm, einstein came up with his theory of general relativity because he wanted to understand how gravity works right okay? and then people then took that and now we have gps right and and other devices that, that are just ubiquitous so wi-fi gps and everything. in fact <laughs> it's beautiful the two are together on your phone <laughs> on the one and you can't one. use either at parts <laughs> and you're probably even listening to this podcast on your phone too indeed okay? and so um it's it's a great example of how um of how science can enhance um, our quality of life and so on. Now, someone was telling me that um, the, the the famous scene in the dish where they're mm. playing cricket on the dish, not recommended by scientists, no, no. <laughs> but that scene wouldn't have been possible at the time they set the movie because they hadn't actually put the, the ceramic plating in. Is That's that right? right, yes, because when the dish was built, the entire surface was made up of steel wire mesh panels, like chicken wire, right. if you like. And Would so been really a dangerous game of cricket. No. <laughs> so there wasn't really anything to stand on. You know? But beginning in 1970, um, partly from the funding we received from the Apollo missions, we've been progressively replacing placing the, the inner 55 metres with perforated aluminium panels. Right. And the most recent upgrade is be, was in 2003 when we extended the panelling to 55 metres. Right. The dish is 64 metres in diameter. Okay. And that's made the telescope more sensitive to the higher frequencies. But when they made the film 20 years ago, um, in 1999, we couldn't put it all back again as it was originally. <laughs> so so they were playing, they, they, there was the, the, the panels there, yeah. the aluminium, which they could stand on. And the reason they had that in the film was to, um, give the dish scale because in yeah. the film they say it's a big dish. So if you've never actually been there, you don't know, you know, how big is big? And so <laughs> they thought, right. well, we'll have someone stand on it, which is boring. Yeah. You know, and they said, well, we'll get them to do something. And the producers had the brilliant idea, <laughs> well, we'll have them play cricket, <laughs> something iconic. And it worked. You know, it's in everyone's really um, thing. And now that's the most common question we get asked. Especially. Did they play cricket? And the answer is no, not at the time. Yes. <laughs> well, and the, the answer is that, well, firstly, if you had a cricket ball on that surface, it wouldn't do it much good. Oh, yeah. When they came to film it, they actually had a real cricket ball. Um, and we promptly took that off <laughs> and gave him a little Smurf ball to play with instead. Yeah. Um, and um, and that's why he couldn't hit it very far. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, but it was a uh, the film was 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 really great. You know, his line was, I mean, it was sending up Australian kind of the, the casual approach of Australians. Exactly. Yes. I think he said something just before it. I haven't seen it for ages, but mm. he said something like, "How dare they treat us this way? We're professionals." And then, he, <laughs> and then they pan back and he's playing. Exactly. They wanted the to they wanted to show that you know that the the Aussies had a different way of doing. And things. Yeah. That, that was the, the theme of the film, you know, that these um, outback astronomers, you know, um, even though they were laconic Australian type characters, you know, they were world class. Right. And that's why NASA came to, to Parks too, yep. because we were the best in the world and they wanted the best, most advanced people and, and instruments tracking the moon at that historic moment. And as we all know, it succeeded brilliantly and yes. the world witnessed that moonwalk with the greatest possible clarity, thanks to Australian expertise. Absolutely. So, um, we might edit this out afterwards, but I'm going to ask. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question. Uh, there's a couple of friends I have in the US who mm. who jokingly poke fun at us, and and not just us, but the, about the whole world. And they say the whole Apollo thing was faked. As mm. someone who 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 knows how these waves are received and all that sort of thing, what's your response to someone who says, "Oh, the whole thing was faked. It was filmed." and so, I mean, you guys have got the records there of all the... 
Exactly. You know, the CSIRO is, was was never part of NASA. You know, right. we're an independent organization. <laughs> right. So we there's no way we could have been part of some conspiracy. You know? Excellent. During the Apollo missions, 400,000 people <laughs> worked on the Apollo missions. Do you think you That's can a lot keep, of people to pay off, isn't it? <laughs> do you think you can keep 400,000 people yes. quiet over all those years? I mean, if the US president can't keep his telephone conversations secret, you think they'll be able to keep that? Yeah. It's not going to happen. We actually tracked the spacecraft all the way to the moon. Right into lunar orbit, onto the lunar surface, and then yep. back again. We were receiving the the voice from the astronauts, the television, of course, the heart rates, all the biomedical data, wow. the spacecraft systems. And as soon as you moved off the that the position the spacecraft was on the sky, you lost it and you came back. <laughs> they were there. Right. And the critical thing is, too, the Russians were doing it also. <laughs> they were watching. They actually had a dedicated antenna built specifically to track the Apollo missions in the Crimea. Wow. And if they suspected for an instant <laughs> that um, the U.S. had faked it, yep. they would have told everyone. I'm sure and, they would um, have, yeah. The fact that they haven't means that, you know, they, they really did. Yeah. It really did happen. And, um, and you know, it was one of those signal moments in human history, sure. you know, yeah. where man reached up and touched the moon for the first time. Yeah. And um, um, to say that it didn't happen sort of impugns the courage of the astronauts who were there. And, 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 and also the, the hard of others. work and professionalism of every single exactly. person and their integrity too. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I've done my research on this and, and it's <laughs> absolutely certain in my mind. I just yes. like to put the nail in that coffin well and truly. Um, let's come back to your work. So you've been involved in tracking the Galileo mission to Jupiter. I think that was your first role there at the, at the dish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you've moved on to lots of other things. Now, yep. what, what, firstly, perhaps if you could talk about um, the kinds of projects you've been involved with on the dish, and then I'll come to one of your hobbies, which I'm really interested in. Yeah. You know, um, I first came to Parks in 1996 to work on the Galileo mission. It was right. a, a project to to track the spacecraft around Jupiter for um, 10 hours every day for one year. Right. The antenna on the spacecraft had failed to unfurl. It was supposed to open up like an umbrella. It failed to do that. And so NASA had to rely on a more sense, a less sensitive antenna to send the data back. But in order to do that, they needed to link several large antennas around the world to combine the signals and boost that signal strength to get the data back. And so they contracted Parks to do that. So I went to Parks originally on an on 11 month contract um, to do that. Um, but here I am now 23 years later, on my, you know, um, 23 years into my 11 month contract. And I was, um, the reason for it is because partway through that, that initial contract, the, the, one of the people that had my job resigned. He wanted to to go overseas and travel, and so I was asked to to do his his work. And um, and at the end of the contract, I was just appointed um, to do that. Um, so I was very very fortunate there. And, Lovely. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. But since then, I've been involved with in various pulsar projects with the with others visiting astronomers and so on. And um, and that's been extremely exciting. Okay, been, can, I, yes. can I pull this out a little bit? Yep. So you, you talked about radio waves, and that mm-hmm. was particularly the case around the, the Apollo missions, etc. Yep. But you talk about pulsars there and grav waves ah, and all okay. kinds of things. Yes, what so are the different things you're measuring there? The, the, the telescope said it's a radio. T- so we detect the radio emissions from from the stars. Everything gives off a gives off radiation at different frequencies. So there are many things in space, such as hydrogen gas, for example, which is seventy five percent of the universe. <laughs> um, you know, it gives off radiation predominantly in the in the um, the microwaves at twenty one centimeter wavelength, and um, and that's what the telescope is designed to detect um, radio waves of around that that wavelength or so. And um, one of the major areas of research at the telescope is the study of pulsars. Pulsars are the the very compact, dense remains of massive stars that have exploded. Okay, so they've exploded and, and what's left? That's is what right. The core of the star may have started off uh, maybe half a million kilometres in diameter, but at the end of its life cycle, it actually collapses on itself and down to only about 10 or 20 kilometres. So if we're talking about scales here, how, mm-hmm. how you went from a big scale there, how big is that compared to our sun? Okay. Well, our sun is about a million and a half kilometers in in um, in diameter. Right. And so the biggest a, a pulsar, really big star would be maybe three or four hundred million. So three hundred or four hundred times the size of our sun. Of our sun. Holy cow! And then on those really massive stars, the the core collapses in on itself. Right. And it happens in an instant. You know, it happens in just a fraction of a second. It goes from being the core of the star goes from being roughly a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand kilometers down to zoom. To about 10 or 20 kilometers 
the overlying material says, hang on, I'm not standing on anything. <laughs> and it just falls in. And when it hits that, that, that collapsed core, it rebounds. The shockwaves um, flow out through the material, rips the star apart and produces this explosion, which we call a supernova. Right. The core then becomes exposed. Right. Um, but because it's so dense now, it's just a big ball of neutrons. So we call it a neutron star. Right. But these stars, even though they're very small, people thought there's no way we'd ever be able to discover or detect these things. But what they weren't expecting was that these stars would have these incredibly intense magnetic fields. Right. Hundreds of millions of times stronger than the magnetic field of the Earth that's surrounding us all now. Mm. And emanating out through the magnetic poles is a beam of energy. So as the star rotates, which on that scale is and you know just a few times a second, as it rotates, that beam sweeps out across space. And if by chance the Earth lies in the direction of that beam. of the beam, then each time it sweeps by, just like a lighthouse, we detect it as ah. a, a, a pulse of energy. So it's, boop, if I can boop, put it crassly, boop. is it like a it's it's collapsed into this intense. Um, neutron sort of base, yeah. and it's spinning like it's got a, a beam of light going out from it, and every we see it each time it that's right, around. Yes. And you can you can make a, a really strong guess at how far away it is based on that. Yes, yeah, um, from from the way the signal travels through the intervening space, and of course, so on. okay, and so on. So we can we can estimate its distance, and but also we use other techniques to mm. to verify. But the thing is, it the, the because it's so massive, you know. I mean that ten that. 10 or 20 kilometer diameter body has the mass of one and a half times our sun. <laughs> so it's incredibly dense. A thimble full of material by hundreds of millions of tons. Yes. And so once it's spinning, very little is going to stop it. So it, it's very regular. <laughs> right. So with those pulses, when they arrive at the earth, it goes boop, boop, boop. You can treat those pulses like ticks on a very, very accurate and clock. This is where you, in, on your website, you're saying you can actually measure that against Earth clocks to see how regular Earth clocks are. Exactly. So we can use it. We call it's called the pulsar time standard. So we we observe many pulsars across Do the you know, sky. I've heard that phrase used so many times. I had no <laughs> idea what it meant. So, <laughs> yeah, so so one of the projects that we're involved in is to to provide that to come up with a new pulsar time standard, which could be potentially more accurate than the very best clocks that we right. have on the Earth at the moment. But the, the other thing that we're, we're doing is we, we can use those pulses, like ticks on a clock, to, to, to try and detect what we call gravitational waves. You know? right. Now, when Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity back in a, a century or so ago, okay. um, he postulated that when bodies ex are accelerating like two objects orbiting each other, for example, they would radiate gravitational energy in the form of waves. Okay, yep. And So this it, is, at his stage, it's only a theory, it's right? It's just a theory. Right. You know? And so the, the, the prediction is that if, well, for example, if you had a one metre diameter ruler, mm. uh, so one metre long ruler right in front of him, and a gravitational wave were to pass um, uh, across that, 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 that ruler, then the space itself the space that that ruler occupies will expand and contract. Okay. Okay. But the amount that it expands is tiny. You right. Know? The ratio of its expanded to its contracted um, lengths is 10 to the minus 20. We, uh, it's, fra it's tiny, tiny it's called fraction. The it's tiny. So in other words, on a one meter scale, the, the amount that it would expand and contract would be one ten thousandth the, the diameter of a proton, which is <laughs> a little hard to measure. Difficult to measure. Okay. However, so I'm guessing that over vast distances, exactly. It so if you had say a ruler that wasn't one meter long, but say ten thousand light years long, say between here to uh, a pulsar, then as the gravitational wave passed between us and the the pulsar, the space would expand and contract by about half a meter. Okay. Which is measurable. Yeah. In nanoseconds. It would take a beam of light a nanosecond or so to travel that, that distance. And so what we what we aim to do is so if this if the gravitational wave passed and the space expanded, the, the the time that the pulses arrive would be delayed slightly because they have slightly longer to, to travel to get to so us. Are you saying then that I mean this is the theory I've heard, but mm -hmm. you're saying you can demonstrate that light is affected by gravity? That's right, yes. Okay. And so... Um, and now I sound like a dunce because some scientists <laughs> has already proved this many years ago, haven't oh, they? Oh, yes. You know, when, when, <laughs> when, when, um, when Einstein's 
um, theory was first tested um, by Arthur Reddington. Um, oh, yes. He observed the light from the star during the eclipse as uh, as he passed by the edge of the of the sun and found that it had shifted slightly. Passed by the edge of the moon. Of, no, of the sun, of, oh, the, okay. of the eclipse sun. Um, or the moon was in the way to yeah. block the light so that you could see the stars. Um, but he found that the stars that are very close to the edge of the sun were shifted slightly in their, the direction uh. they were travelling by the amount that Einstein had calculated they should. And that was what made him world famous. Right. But with our project, but no one had actually detected the, the gravitational waves, you know, um, the gravitational energy traversing out, um, um, radiating out from, sure. from um, these things. And so um, so what we were aimed to do was to, to time the pulses from pulsars so that when the space expanded, the pulses would arrive um, slightly delayed because they'd have slightly longer to travel. When the space contracted, they'd arrive slightly ahead of schedule because right. they have slightly less to distance to travel. Which kind of messes up your clock, doesn't it? it well, actually, we can check it. The, well, what we do for an individual pulsar, it's difficult to tell. Is the clock right or is the <laughs> pulsar doing this <laughs> yes, thing? Yes, fair enough. But what we do is we observe lots of pulsars across the at sky the, at the and time. compare each of those against all the others. Right. And, and, and so that if it is a clock problem, then they should all be. Yeah, um, sure. Um, shifted by the the same amount, but if it's to, if it's a gravitational wave, then it should only be in the particular direction the wave is travelling. Because that light. that light's travelling through a unique um, set of circumstances. To That's get right to. in the direction. Yeah. So and so it has a very unique signature. The way the the, the pulses, the timing of the pulses will arrive yep. has a very unique signature, All right. which we can we can measure, but we need to observe over a long time to do so, it. So if I'm sitting at home listening to this and I think, well, this is all very nice for scientists. Yes. What can we do with this? Like, what's the, apart from the clock setting, which um, most of us are happy with down to a couple of seconds. Yes. So, <laughs> so we're not quite as particular about that. Now, there's obviously very good reasons to know precise yes. time, but Let's. How would this affect? Well, what are the, What is? What can we currently gain from this science in terms of what technology we have, and what are the potential future outcomes? That's a very good question. I mean, first and foremost, we do it because we want to understand the universe. You know, how does the universe operate? Sure. How does gravity work, um, and so on. But once we have that, people are ingenious. You know, they say, "Hang on, I can use this for something." And one of those things is GPS. Right. In fact, if you don't take into account the 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 um, if you don't use general relativity to to um, um, to map uh, things to, to map the the Earth and the satellites the GPS satellite you would not be able to to get the the G, you know, the the positioning to work accurately. So some pe people who are using GPS on their phones pretty much every day these days. Exactly, I and mean, everyone uses it now. It's it's become ubiquitous. Right. We just take it for granted now that you know that this <laughs> this works. You know, but yep. hang on, there was a lot of thought yes. that went into. It. But when they started, Einstein he wasn't thinking. I want to make a system that's going to help us find <laughs> positions on the Earth's surface accurately. <laughs> to help me find the meeting that I have to get to. That's <laughs> right. And so and um and. You know, that's not wasn't his aim. His aim was to try and understand the universe. Right. How does it operate? You know, and then, but at, once that that was um, um, achieved, you know, he came up with this really robust theory. People were able to apply that to various other things, and one of those is like GPS, for right. example. Okay, and that's been um, um, in a. I mean, I found my way here today using the GPS. Of you course. Know? Um, it tells me exactly where I am and so on, and it's, it's very, very easy. Mm. And so that's an example of, of, the, um, um, you know, of how pure knowledge that's derived just because of the desire to understand the universe And then some clever bunny comes along and goes, exactly. hey, if we know this, yep. we can do that. Exactly, you know, and what we aim to do is trying to see how accurate general relativity is. You know, right. What point will it break down? Okay. You know, we've done all sorts of observations in trying to to verify it. that gravitational wave detection is just one. Yep. Another another discovery we made um, about 16 years ago was when we found two pulsars orbiting about each other, Ooh. and we could time the the. The, the, the pulsars so accurately that we could we, we were able to determine that the orbit of those two pulsars was shrinking by seven millimeters a day which was in agreement with the theory of general relativity right seven millimeters a day we were able to measure that oh, th boy. to that accuracy that, see my as a little boy I'm going back to my childhood now and I'm thinking, <laughs> yes. 
That's seven millimeters a day, but that means eventually they're going to come together. Exactly. And so, um, and on that basis, this particular double pulsar system will coalesce in about 85 million years. Time, right. Which seems like a lot, but in for the in terms of the age of the universe mm. and with the number of stars there are in the universe, that's actually quite, it should make it quite common. And in fact, about three years ago, the LIGO team, it was a team of, of, of physicists in the United States, were using the laser beams to try and detect gravitational waves. And they actually found a gravitational wave signature of two neutron stars coalescing wow. at that point. And, <laughs> and we were able to detect the gravitational waves from billions of light years away. It's amazing. Um, and again, it was a beautiful confirmation of the theory. Mm. So it gives us confidence when we do these things and we're unable to break the theory, so to speak, it gives us confidence that we have a pretty good understanding of the universe and how it operates. Mm. And But we're always trying to to, to see at what point does it fail? Yep. Do we have to modify the theory or, yep. or not? And, um, yeah, and, and does, what it, sort of confidence should we have with our un, of our understanding? So if I can take us on a slight side trip now, mm -hmm. um, one of your projects was searching for the Apollo 11 oh, SSTV okay. tapes. Um, the, the slow scan TV, that's the SST, the slow scan TV, um, was what the, the astronauts were actually transmitting from the moon right. in July 1969. Because the lunar module was severely power and, and bandwidth restricted, um, they, they couldn't transmit commercial quality television. Sure. Okay. So the engineers um, built what's called a slow scan TV camera. Slow scan was just a black and white image at just 10 frames a second and 320 lines per frame, scan lines per frame. Ooh. Commercial television in the US was NTSC. It was, um, it was color and it was... Um, 30 frames a second at 525 lines per frame and they were interlaced. So you had odd numbered and then even numbered lines to right. make up each okay. frame. So it was very complicated. Um, so they instead used slow scan TV because it meant they could own, they, they only needed to transmit about 70% of the mm. data so but, they could get it all. But it, it implies, the fact that you're looking for it implies that's somewhere to be found. Missing. Exactly. So on the earth, when that TV was, the signals were received, the way they converted for, for public consumption so people at home could see it was they just displayed that image on a small black and white TV screen, pointed a video camera at that, <laughs> and that's what the world saw <laughs> and what was recorded everywhere. Right. Okay. But, um, but of course, you can imagine if your settings aren't quite right and, and yep. the, the transmission, you lose image loss, um, image quality in the transmission, the end result isn't, is, is not quite as, as good as what no. was originally transmitted. So I thought in a back when I soon after I started at Park said, well why don't we just go looking for those tapes? Were, because right. when the when the signals were received, they were recorded onto magnetic data tapes right. as backup in case all the relays failed. But they were um, all the raw data was recorded and then put in storage in the US National Archives. Nobody knows where. <laughs> and so I said, well let's just go find it and, and we'll play it. And we'll recover the original slow scan TV. And then with modern techniques, we can even enhance it further if you want and show the world the, the true quality of what was transmitted from the moon. Mm. But try as I might, I couldn't find these tapes. No one seemed to know where they were. And in the course of the search, I was joined by colleagues. One was a, um, a friend in Sydney, Colin McKellar, an Anglican minister, yep. and other colleagues in the US. So we end up forming a team of five in an informal search. And um, we eventually f discovered that all the tapes were put into the National Archives in the US mm -hmm. um, for safe storage, safe storage. <laughs> so safe you can't <laughs> find them. <laughs> and then in the late 1970s, because there was a severe budget cuts for NASA, they were running short on tapes for new missions coming up. Somebody remembered there were about 250,000 tapes uh, in the National Archives that no one seemed to be using. So they said, hey, that's great. So they pulled them all degaussed and erased them all and reused them. And so we were and so we were devastated. We said, oh my goodness. Um, there was no indication that they treated the Apollo 11 recordings any differently. So wow. we had to come to the to the sad conclusion that um, in all likelihood they were erased and lost forever. Wow. So we then convinced NASA to take the best of the scan converted stuff, the stuff that was yep scan converted and recorded elsewhere that we found during the search 
take the best parts of those, put it all together as a single video and then restore it, right. which they agreed to do. It cost about a quarter of a million dollars, but wow. at that point, I don't think they were interested in the cost. <laughs> <laughs> they needed a fig leaf to cover their embarrassment, yes, I think. Yes. And so we released that um, in 2009 as part of the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. However, at Parks, and only at Parks, because Parks was the main receiving antenna for the TV of the moon, Milk, engineers had modified an existing Ampex video recorder to record the slow scan TV direct from the telescope. So there's a recording there. So there is a secondary recording of the slow scan TV and that's what we're, we're, we're still looking for. We haven't found, discovered the fate of that. There's no indication that it was erased or whatever. Mm. So we're hoping it's somewhere right? and we're still searching for that. We okay. do have a few leads. So who knows, maybe in a year or two, hopefully, fingers <laughs> Come crossed. Come back with some good news. We'll have good news. Now, you mentioned there an Anglican minister was involved yep. in this search and we've talked about the bishops being mm-hmm. very interested in your, um, yeah. and that you have a uh, friendship with Bishop Colombo. Yeah. You're a man of faith yourself though, aren't you? I am, yes, yeah. So what was your faith? Well, I'm um, Armenian Apostolic, right. and um, but I was educated with the Maris Brothers, um, the Lovely. Sisters of Mercy, um, yep. from year 1971, and then from there at, at St. Joseph's um, Primary School in yep. um, at Rosebury, I went to Maris Brothers Daceville, and then from there to Maris Brothers at Pagewood, where I graduated. And this this is a, a common theme I'm seeing, finding amongst uh, scientists as I fulfill my boyhood fantasies and catch up with all these really cool sciences. There is sometimes uh, a false idea put out there that faith and science don't mix, that you mm-hmm. either believe in stuff or you go to science. Now, mm-hmm. What would your response to that be? Well, you know, um, as you said, you know, people have this misconception that there's a conflict between science and faith, mm. which to me is a nonsense, you know. Um, the science, actually, the, the, the science that we use, the, the scientific method and the, the people that, that, that established the scientific method were men of deep faith, you yes, know. Yes, they were. Um, it, it actually, science, modern science actually came out of, of the, um, the um, of, of, of very deeply Christian religious men who wanted to understand the... Um, God's creation, you know, mm. because they thought this is something that God created, and therefore it is something that's 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 noble to study to understand. Because okay. what God makes is wonderful and good, and therefore exactly. Yeah. And so that was their motivation. They wanted to understand God's creation, and so they began to to study. They they borrowed ideas from the Greeks um, that you know the. the the mathematics, the geometry, and some, um, and the philosophies, and some, from both from the Greeks and and other other um, um, civilizations, and then built on it. Yep. But their main motivation was to understand God's creation. And in some respects, science can describe creation, but that doesn't answer the question why. So, for example, um, we can look at the the most amazing stuff and observe stars and all kinds of different behavior of. Um, things in the universe like light and gravity and we can look at the the smallest things like the the embryo growing in the womb or something like that we could describe the progress of these things and the habits and as you said the 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 predictability of the spinning of a neutron that's right but we can't say why it's there exactly you know the the science is is the study of the physical universe Mm. the things that we can perceive through our senses you know we can measure and we can measure and, and observe directly okay um, through our senses and so on. That's what science deals with. Faith and religion deals with the spiritual universe, you know, the the, the spiritual aspects, you know. Um, if, for example, if I had a stone in my hand and I release it, what, what, what would happen? It will probably fall it in this studio. It will fall, yeah. okay, it will drop. Yep. And so science says um, we'll try and understand how it will drop, you know, at what rate and so on, because we can study that. You know, our experience says it will drop. You know, um, and it's a repeatable ta- experiment. Exactly. If I was to take a stone and instead of dropping it, whack it down on your head and, and kill you, <laughs> I would say, "Oh, that's wrong. That's right. that's not good." And that's where religion comes in. Why you can't? I can't do an experiment to say why. You know, to say, "Oh, hang on, let me get my good meter out and say, <laughs> oh, it's about it has a goodness value of four point three. Right. There's no such thing. All <laughs> right. And so religion tells me through revelation because it's revealed within something within human beings it says that's mm. not right you know? it's interesting jeff it's not right there's a classic line in jurassic park where jeff bridges character says um you were so busy um being excited about what you could do you didn't ask if you should 
Exactly, you know. And so, you know, you've got to ask, you know, so religion deals with the the spiritual, you know, our relationship with God, you know. And, and with and each so, other. And with each other and so on. You know, what is what is good, what is evil and, and so on. You know, but I won't go to religion and say, how will the stone fall? <laughs> okay, right? That's not the realm, you know. Science mm. is silent in terms of what's good or, or evil. Okay. Because right. it's it's not not within the purview of science. It's, it's a not, way of understanding. That's right. We just want to understand how the physical universe works. That's what science says, okay? But faith has to do with, you know, um, our relationship with God, you know? What is the relationship with the spiritual and, hmm. and so on? But looking, That's where it comes Often up. it comes up, even in the scriptures and also in our lives, that, that observing what is can often bring us a sense of awe. So I've heard from some of the astronauts in their, their interviews that they've said their faith in God was enhanced greatly when they looked back and saw the earth and, and just, wow. Exactly, you know, but that's something they had to experience within themselves. They didn't mm. get out a meter, you know, a wow <laughs> meter to do it. Okay? They, it came from within. Sure. You see, they looked at, oh, that's beautiful. Mm. You know, I remember my third class teacher, Sister Mary Joseph, <laughs> she, she gave us, she posed that very question to us, you know. She said, if you look at a, a beautiful painting on a wall, she said, you would say, that's beautiful. But if someone asks you, where's the beauty? You're not going to say, oh, there it is. It's in the top left-hand <laughs> corner of the painting. Okay. You don't, you, it's, yep. it's not something you can, you can measure or mm. point to. Okay. It's something that you perceive within you. That's sure. It's in the, the painting. And the astronauts, when they saw the earth, that f what to them looked like very fragile, the only color in the entire universe they could see, you know, compared to the barren lunar landscape beneath them. Um, they, they marveled at it. They said, geez, that's beautiful. You know, look at that. You know, it's special. I can imagine that there's still moments that you're thinking of that, back to that little boy in the classroom looking at the, the, the Parks Observatory thinking, wow. That's um, right. You know, um, and the thing is, I, there's an example that I give that, you know, you know, most people when they go out, imagine someone goes out on a, on a, on a clear moonless night on a windswept hilltop and they look up and they see the universe. Okay. Most people say, oh, my goodness, I'm insignificant. <laughs> you know, I'm a speck on a speck on a speck, you know. Yep. What the, who the hell am I to be, to be significant, you know. But I think for me, that's, that's not the right way to be, to be thinking of it, you know. The thing you have to understand is, as far as we know, at this point, the, as far as we know, according to the best information we have, we human beings are the most complex things in the universe. Right. There's nothing more complex. There are enormous galaxies, big stars exploding and black holes and things. But the physics behind them is pretty straightforward and we can, we can understand it. But a human being is, is the most complex thing within it. Right. And so, but in order for us to be here, required four and a half billion years of evolution. Okay. Now, because how do we know? Because when we... When the Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago, life appeared on the Earth within a few hundred million years of it forming. Right. But it was single-celled creatures, you know, little amoebas and so on. It then took another four and a half billion years to go from that <laughs> to us, okay? But in order for the – so the universe has to at least be four and a half billion years old. Right. For that to happen, which means the universe has to be at least four and a half billion light years in size, in, in radius, okay? <laughs> At least. At least. And then before then, of course, all the heavy elements that we're made of, like carbon, the oxygen that we breathe, the gold we dig up, had to be synthesized inside stars, which required many more generations of other stars to exist before. Right. For them, for that material to be, to be um, synthesized within the star, explode, be scattered through the, the galaxy in the universe, seed. And then, and then uh, gathered in this miraculous way. And then do it again many, many times. <laughs> so let's say, you know, how long would that have taken? Maybe another four and a half, five billion years. So the universe has to be at least 10 billion years old or Ten roughly. Billion. 10 billion years yep. old, which means it has to be at least that 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 large in, in radius. From from side to side. Exactly, because the further away something is, the longer it takes right. for the light to reach us. Okay? So it's pretty amazing that all of these things, and we, you, you, um, we could go through this chain, we don't have time today, but yeah. it turns we go through all of that chain for all of these things to happen that they've coalesced into a, a life, not just a life form, but a space that is so 
stable exactly. and regular for yeah. that lifetime film to exist. Mm. To be and an accident, that's an extraordinary. Well, you know, if thing. It, well, put it this way: if it was an accident, you know, um, then we. If it wasn't an accident and it didn't happen, we wouldn't be here saying what a great thing it was. Yeah? <laughs> but, the, but, but the point I was trying to make is that the, the size of the universe, the universe has to be that big right. for us to be here. Right. Okay. And so rather than the size of the universe being something that makes you feel insignificant, it should be something that shows you your worth, you know. Yes. It, it had to be that How big. much effort in terms of intelligence and design and incredible patience that's is right. involved. You know, um, that's not a new thought. No. People have been thinking this for thousands. In fact, Psalm 8. Yes. How does Psalm 8 start? It says, when I consider thy heavens, the yep. work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Yeah. That's exactly that thought. People... People go up and they see the stars and they go, oh, my goodness, look at that immensity. Mm. And here we are. But all of that, what you're saying is that all of that was necessary for this plan to come to being. Well, for us to be here, it had to, to be. And so, if I can take you to Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the, and the firmament, such as the dome of heaven, proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech, night after night, knowledge. And basically, you can see the amazing, amazing thing. Exactly. So if I can put to you this, ending up on the faith sort of theme today, there are those who like to insist, no, you must believe the world is made in seven days, or if you follow this evolutionary theory, it's irreverent and it dispenses with the idea of God. But the way you've just described a, a Christian, a, a faith-based understanding of that um, God creating us through these means seems to be, much more filled with wonder and awe at the sheer m scope and and size of the of this kind of bringing us together and exactly. it, it also is has much more dignifying of us as a species to say if if that was all for this to happen exactly. wow well as i said you know the reason why the science that we do today the way it originated was because because these brilliant men wanted to understand God's creation. So mm. they said, this is how we're going to, to learn about it, you know, discover the truth about the physical universe. And this is what we've discovered, you know. This is it. And it, it blows people's minds. Go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> God, how does that work? You know, that's inspiring in itself, yes. you know. But, you, but it was – and, in fact, one of the, one of the people – I mean, um, if I could, if I may, you know, just to go back to – the, the concept of the Big Bang Theory, you know, it was, it was a consequence of Einstein's general relativity that the, his, his equations that he came up with, according to those equations, the universe cannot be static. It, it can't just be sitting there. It's either going right. to be expanding or contracting some. But a, but a really brilliant physicist of uh, a century ago, um, a Belgian priest, Georges Lemaitre, took those equations and concluded that the universe cannot be static. It has to be expanding. Right. So he, he found, every, he went through the literature, found um, astronomers who had measured the velocity of galaxies and their distances and put it together and found that it was expanding. Okay. And then Hubble, a couple of years later, found exactly the same thing. But right. Hubble was a lot more um, bigger self-promoter, so right. everyone heard of him. <laughs> yes, everyone heard of him. <laughs> okay. And so, but they, they, they had discovered that the universe was expanding. Now, if you rewind that movie, if you imagine something's expanding, you rewind it, then it must go it's more all the way back. It's got to come back to a point, doesn't it? Yeah, it must come back to a, to a, a, to a point. And so um, how far back do you have to go? Well, we now know from measuring the, the rate of expansion and so on that the universe was created about 13 and a half billion years ago. Right. Give or take. When that was first proposed... Pope Pius in the 1930s said, oh, this is brilliant. It implies a creation <laughs> and so on. And he wanted to incorporate it into Catholic theology. And right. George Lamarcher said, no, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Because in science, nothing is ever settled. Right. Because right? well, okay. it's an observation. It's not it's a, just yeah. a, uh, it's an observation. We could find something that could contradict it tomorrow sure. or show that it maybe not quite as what we thought. It's hmm. more to it or whatever. Don't do that. Because yep. he said, the church had a terrible time extricating itself from the <laughs> geocentric theory earlier because yes, everyone yes. in the past had told the church, the earth, the earth is the center of the universe. Everything yep. revolves around the earth in perfect circles. We made the mistake of taking a particular form of science and making it part of our well, doctrine. They, they brought it into the theology and right. the dogma of the church and so it, and then they had a terrible time extricating themselves. And he <laughs> said, don't make the same mistake, okay? 
Science is the study of the physical universe. Okay, right. leave it at that. Okay, okay, <laughs> and use and it then, for wonder. Exactly, and the, the 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 Christian faith can stand on its own. You right. know, it is it is it's precious and 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 it's you don't need to back it up with, with mm. the other stuff because so it's, it's not it's not even. I mean, what we yeah. talk about the scriptures, they're not against any of these things. They occasionally exactly. make observations and draw draw moral conclusions and faith conclusions from yes. the observation, but they're not dictating any particular science. Mm. So, just to wrap it up in terms of the conversation, what would you mm. say to a young young man of faith who who's also fascinated by the world? What would your advice be in starting out in science? Well. Uh, my advice would be, you know, um, study the physical universe, study God's creation. You know, there's a lot there to be to be to learn. You know, and it's net, and you know, there, you know, um, there's more there than than we could we could that we understand that there is now. Right. Example. So there's lots more there's to discover. There's lots more to discover, and um, and if you're motivated by the desire to understand God's creation study science but keep that in mind that it's the physical universe you're doing right there's no conflict between um science and faith because mm. they're they one deals with the physical the other's the spiritual except um, where religion tries to make scientific declarations and science tries to make religious declarations exactly you know and you end up with um um with problems then yes you do. <laughs> the problems is a nice gentle okay. way of saying it you know, and you know the great the great church the, the the founding you know the the doctors of the church like Augustine and and others you know in the past mm. the great philosophers that that built the intellectual structure of the the framework of of the the faith mm. you know they understood that you know? yes and well, my um, own patron is uh, Saint Albert the Great who's actually the patron of scientists okay um and he he was a master of every academic discipline that existed mm. at his time yeah which was possible in those <laughs> days <laughs> it was, because they were still handwriting books he yes. had read he had read every book that had been published so yeah. he's an amazing man uh, but he um he knew that the center of it all was the philosophy and, and, and theology to understand why and where it all fits. Yeah. All right, that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking, arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to our podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can tell us what you liked or what you didn't like or what you'd like us to discuss in a future show by dropping us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can continue this conversation by joining our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook feeds, or Discord, and you can find all the links in the show notes. You'll also see in the show notes for this show um, John's website and uh, anything else he deems that we should look at, the Parks Observatory and other scientific goodies. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Before we go, it's time for shout-outs. Have you got anyone you'd like to say hello to, John? Yeah, well, I do. I have um, my friends in the Central West Astronomical Society um, based in around parks in, in the Central West. I co-founded the, the society with uh, the former bishop of the, the diocese, um, Bishop Chris Tui. Oh, yes. And um, it's been going from strength to strength. And, um, you know, we, we like to bring astronomy to the people and um, so that they can see the, the, the wonders of the heavens and so on and Lovely. be inspired by it. My shout out is to my, my boys and my girls who are currently fascinated by space. We just bought them a space game and they're very much fascinated by it. And it's, it's beautiful, this game in, that incorporates actual astronomy and, and in it. And they will think that their dad is slightly less uncool now because he's, <laughs> he's hung out with someone who actually knows this stuff. Thank you, John, for being with us. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.